0: Compass Media Networks. This is America's First News. This weekend with your host, Gordon Deal. Our lousy economic mood. I'm Gordon Deal with Jennifer Koshenka. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Here's what's coming up this hour.
1: If the economy picked up steam in the third quarter and the unemployment rates remains low, why are Americans gloomy? We'll have analysis.
0: Super commuting is on the rise. Here are the workers who make extraordinary trips to work.
1: In sports, is flag football becoming the next pickleball? It'll be at the 2028 Olympics.
0: And the effort airlines make with their food, according to a travel writer who did some sampling.
2: Oh my goodness, what didn't I try? It was everything from breakfast food, like overnight oats, and like a yogurt parfait, to short ribs and ravioli, and it was all surprisingly, to me, really good.
0: Zach Wichter at USA Today has a behind-the-scenes look at how Delta preps its meals. Well, we recently learned that the economy, far from sliding toward recession, as economists had predicted over the past year, has actually picked up steam thanks to enthusiastic consumers. So if the economy is so good, why are Americans so gloomy? Here's Greg Ipp, chief economics commentator at The Wall Street Journal. Greg, explain.
3: Well, Gord, if we look at the basic indicators of how the economy performs, most of them are looking really, really good. You know, we just recorded a 4.9 percent growth rate in the third quarter, which is pretty spectacular. Uh, In fact, the economy is now larger than it was predicted to be if the pandemic had never happened. The unemployment rate is back down to close to a 50-year low, and that's not just because people have given up looking for work. In fact, the number of people in the labor force is also back to where it was uh, before the uh, pandemic happened. I suppose the biggest negative is inflation, which did get very high. And obviously that's pretty depressing, but inflation has started to come down. Uh, It was 9% at its peak. Now it's 3.7%. And just as important wages have started catching up in many cases are exceeding that. So yes, um, people have a right to be upset at how inflation has eaten into their uh, incomes, but they've made a lot of progress. But I think the surprising thing is that when you actually take into account all these things, you look at something called the misery index, which is essentially the unemployment rate plus inflation and you compare that to things like the University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index, you find that sentiment still seems oddly depressed. It's lower than you could probably explain just looking at the inflation and unemployment rates. So Mm -hmm. there's a
0: little bit of a mystery there. Okay, yeah, and why? I mean, as you
3: started to peel this back, did you come up with anything? Well, I think inflation has probably been very dispiriting in ways that we don't fully comprehend just by looking at the inflation rate alone. First of all, even though the inflation rate has come down, the inflation rate is really how fast the level of prices moving up. And just because they're moving up more slowly, doesn't really sort of like make people feel better when they consider how far they've come. I mean, in many cases, they're looking at, you know, restaurant meals and other prices, gasoline, groceries that are 20 or 30% more expensive than they were two or three years ago, and they're not about to start going down. So if you just look at the level of prices, people are pretty unhappy, uh, especially with homes. Like if you actually want to go and buy a house, houses are way more expensive, plus mortgage rates are their highest in 20 years. So if you're shopping for a home, that's pretty depressing too. But I think there must be something else going on here, Gord. Honestly, I think that the economic pessimism is a reflection of a broader pessimism out there uh, in the world. I just think that it's, I call it like it's referred pain. You know how like part of your body can hurt because you injured a different part of the body? Doctors call this referred pain. I kind of feel that people's, Expression of pain on the economy is is a referral of an overall level of distress or feeling about the world at large. And like, who can't sort of feel a little despondent looking at all the terrible things going on in the world, whether it's political and cultural conflict, war in Ukraine, war in the Middle East, you know, mass shootings, crime, uh, drug overdoses, homelessness, or whatever. It's kind of pretty bad out there.
0: We're speaking with Greg Ipp, chief economics commentator at the Wall Street Journal. His piece is called The Economy is Great. Why are Americans in such a rotten mood? And as he says, lingering inflation can't explain all the unhappiness. You know, you made me think of something there. You referenced a couple of items, and I thought it's like the inflation hangover effect or something. You referenced homes. Like, this is the biggest investment most of us ever make, and it seems very daunting right now to want to try to buy a home. And then you referenced, like, gas prices grocery prices this is these are like the everyday reminders so we got the everyday reminders versus that biggest investment some of us try to make it's frustrating it seems
3: yeah that's right and these things all cut in different directions so higher home prices are great if you already own a home and don't have any intention of trading up to another it makes you feel wealthy and indeed we have data that suggests uh, wealth has grown in a significant way since 2019. But if you're one of those people who doesn't own a home and hopes to have one, or you're trying, trying to trade up on the one you have right now, the fact that prices are up so much is daunting and it creates a very high hurdle to overcome. So that's not a good thing. Now gasoline is um, actually, it's come down a lot. It was as much as $5, I think, when it's down below $4. And we've had you know gasoline between three fifty and $4 in the past. And obviously $3.50 gasoline today is not quite as punishing as it was 10 years ago, given that there's been overall inflation in that period. Nonetheless, people do remember when it was cheaper, and they kind of miss that. And, you know, uh, uh, milk is more expensive than it was a couple years ago. It's not going up any longer, but people remember when it was a lot cheaper.
0: Um, You reference, to the role of political polarization. How does that factor in?
3: Well, we've seen this phenomenon basically since the beginning of Barack Obama's first term as president, where essentially people's You see people's attitudes about the economy shape their attitudes about the president. It seems the other way around. Their attitudes about the president shape their attitudes about the economy. And what this means is that when a Democrat is in the White House, Democrats think the economy is doing well and Republicans think it's terrible. And when a Republican is in the White House, it's exactly the opposite. And if you look at the data now, you see exactly this dichotomy. Republicans and Democrats both say the personal financial situation is quite good, but Democrats think that's true of the overall economy, but Republicans don't. And I'm sure that if uh, Trump were still president, it would be just the opposite. But even so, uh, Gordon, I have trouble believing that that can entirely explain why the national mood is so low. Um, and I just feel like there's something else going on here.
0: Thanks, Greg. Greg Ipp, chief economics commentator at The Wall Street Journal. Coming up next, the spike in supercommuting. Dell's Black Friday event is their biggest sale of the year. Shop limited-time deals on laptops like the stylish, innovative XPS 13, engineered to do it all on the Intel Evo platform. Plus, save big on ultra-sharp monitors and top-brand accessories. Shop now at dell.com slash deals to take advantage of huge savings and free shipping. Again, that's dell.com slash deals. Thanks for spending part of your weekend here. Thanks to the flexibility of many hybrid jobs, more and more professionals are rethinking the maximum distance they're willing to commute. Some are making extended drives, others are enduring long journeys by mass transit, and an elite handful are taking Herculean journeys involving multiple flights, Here's Aki Ito, senior correspondent at Insider. Aki, what's trending?
4: It's basically somebody who has a very, very long commute. Um, So researchers define it in different ways, but probably the most standard definition is somebody who has a commute one way that's more than 90 minutes.
0: Okay. And so we've seen more of these over, what, the past couple of decades?
4: Yes, um, definitely. As you know, uh, I think a a bunch of different factors played into this. Um, For example, uh, dual earning households. Um, It's hard for both um, people in in a household to find a job in the same city. So, um, you know, one person ends up getting a job that's in the next city over.
0: Explain uh, the part where you talk about this spelling trouble for mid sized cities.
4: Yeah, so I mean, you know, people have, you know, very different theories about this, but um, there's a professor I spoke to at NYU. He's, um, an expert on urban planning. His name's Mitchell Moss. And his hypothesis is that, you know, the emergence of remote work, people were like, oh, big cities are dead, like everybody's moving out. But he was saying, you know, actually, big cities are going to benefit from this um, trend of hybrid work, because everybody's still going to want to get together in these big cities.
0: We're speaking with Aki Ito, senior correspondent at Insider. Her story is called Super Commuting is on the Rise. And that spells big, trouble for mid-sized cities uh, you, you opened your story talking about this uh, this guy Lee Robinson from Iowa explain what he goes through
4: <laughs> yeah so his uh, his commute is quite long um, you know he gets up at five in the morning uh, drives to the airport um, he, he lives in Des Moines so he's all the way in Iowa. Uh, Goes through security, gets on a 6 a.m. flight. Then he has a connection in Denver because there isn't a direct flight from Des Moines to San Francisco where his office is. So then he gets on another flight to San Francisco, takes an Uber to um, San Francisco's financial district where his office is. Um, And door to door, you know, that trip takes seven and a half hours. And that's assuming there aren't any flight delays um, and very little traffic.
0: Mm. I'm jealous that he wakes up at five but is on a six o'clock plane. (laughs)
4: Well, that's (laughs) (laughs) one of the pleasures of living, you know, in a a smaller city.
0: (laughs) What happens uh, years from now? Is this is this going to continue or or could things possibly switch in a new direction?
4: You know, I do think it's going to continue. You know, I I think kind of early to the middle of the pandemic, a lot of us thought that like remote work was going to be the new big thing. But um, increasingly, as companies uh, have their employees come back to the office, it's looking like hybrid work is really the dominant model here. Um, I I do think the companies that are insisting on five days a week, increasingly, they're going to, you know, scale that back to four, maybe three days. Um, Maybe the companies that are doing three days um, will scale it back to one, or maybe they'll make it more into a, a model where it's like one week, out of uh an entire month um and and, you know and that's just i I think that's going to continue as a technology that enables remote work is going to get better and better Um, so i think we're going to see a lot more super commuters in the future for sure
0: yeah um you had a a neat little breakout in which you you referenced uh the super commute math (laughs) explain that like uh you, you you know, if you only have to go to work in the office a couple of days, you can afford the longer commute possibly. Yeah. Um, you had a, a neat little breakout in which you, you referenced uh, the super commute math. <laughs> Explain that. Like, uh, you, you know, if you only have to go to work in the office a couple of days, you can afford the longer commute possibly
4: right right exactly so you know think about like how much time you commute uh one way per day you know you multiply that by two and then you multiply that by five um to think about you know the entire time you spend commuting during a week uh, pre-pandemic. Um, now that a lot of people are only having to go into the office three times a week, you know, that means that you your uh, total commute time is down. That allows you the possibility of maybe moving a little bit further away and keeping that average commute time constant compared to before the pandemic.
0: Thanks, Aki. Aki Ito, Senior Correspondent at Insider. Glad you could spend some time with us, many of us have belongings that meant a lot to our parents and grandparents. How do we decide? What to keep and what to throw away. Here's this weekend's Jennifer Koshenka.
1: Some stuff may have meant a lot to your parents or grandparents, but what if you don't want it? Deciding what to do with things that are passed down to you can be very difficult. Here with the story is Allison Poley of the Wall Street Journal. Allison, should we talk about the meaning of this stuff with our parents or grandparents before it gets to us? We should. So experts
5: I spoke to suggested that even though these conversations can be really awkward and tough to bring up, a lot of people should take advantage of the time that they have with their parents to talk through these things before they are trying to navigate an inheritance in a time crunch or in a state of grief.
1: What are some of the stuff (laughs) uh, that you talked about in your story? So this was a
5: more personal piece. So I talked about how my grandma thought many things were collector's items, which included jelly jars, precious moments, figurines, even some beanie babies that she had given to me. So those types of things were the items that I looked at in my own family, but I know a lot of people are navigating what to do with old china or silverware or even furniture that they don't exactly have space for, but know has meaning within their families.
1: Do we sometimes discover that things collected over the years do not have the value that your parents or grandparents think it might have? Definitely, and
5: this is especially the case with collectors or collectibles, people who have collections. So now that the Internet is accessible to more people, It's easier to list one of these items and easier to get it. So you can get something shipped from across the world. That means that individual items that are part of collections aren't quite as valuable because they're more accessible. Though of course, there are exceptions to this.
1: We're speaking with Allison Poley of the Wall Street Journal. Allison, I think we've all gone through this, but how do we not feel guilty if we decide to sell or even throw out some of the stuff that gets passed down to us?
5: I spoke to a home organizer who was really helpful about this, and she suggested separating the story from the item. So a lot of us struggle with letting go of things because there's a story attached to it and it has a lot of meaning in that way. But if we can find another way to record the story or let the value be known to us, it's easier to let go of the physical item that is
1: taking up space. Yeah, there was a suggestion in your story to just take pictures of things. Does that help? It depends. If you have a good organization system and look at pictures frequently,
5: then yes, that's a good way of going about it. You can also choose to keep perhaps one item that was part of a collection rather than keeping the entire collection. So there are ways to manage it and still hold on to some things, but not every single thing.
1: So is this kind of changing with younger people that they don't want the stuff they want experiences? Are we different from our parents?
5: Yeah, in a lot of ways we are. And I think parents or baby boomers relate to this as well. They don't want necessarily every single thing that their parents had. So it's a trend that's continuing. But because of the way that a lot of millennials and Gen Z live, you know, they're in apartments, they're in smaller spaces, they don't have room for it. And they're prioritizing experiences as opposed to physical items, much more so than prior generations were.
1: Allison, is there a cost to holding on to things? There is. And it can be a financial cost, for example,
5: maintaining some of these items, or having a storage facility, or it can be an emotional cost. Sometimes there's a lot of baggage tied to specific items, and that can be tough for people to navigate as well.
1: I I know your story also talked about Hummels. We went through that with our family. We found out that the Hummels were really not worth what our parents thought they might have been worth. How can you find out how, how much things are worth today?
5: You can get an appraisal, or you can take it to a consignment shop consignment shops will have these items listed for a longer period of time to market them. So there can be a bidding process from multiple vendors. So that can increase the value as well.
1: And what can be confusing is that things also go in and out of favor, right?
5: Right. So that's a generational thing. It's also a a rite of passage as well. So what might have um, little value now could be worth something one day. So I guess we'll see if that turns out for the Beanie Babies that I still have.
0: That's this weekend's Jennifer Koshenka with Wall Street Journal reporter Allison Poley. Coming up next, how kids can learn to be YouTubers. Aging is a journey that can gather some unwanted passengers, namely those senescent or zombie cells. Hi, it's Gordon Deal, and I used to feel that sluggish middle age mood, those aches after workouts. I could practically feel those old cells just taking up space, bogging me down. Then I found Qualia Senolytic. Think of it as giving your body a little spring cleaning, pruning away the worn-out cells, and letting the lively ones shine, and you only take it two days a month. Crafted with vegan, gluten-free, non-GMO ingredients. Plus, with a 100-day money-back guarantee, you've got a risk-free journey to rejuvenation. Resist aging at the cellular level. Try Qualia Senolytic. Go to neurohacker.com Gordon for up to $100 off. And use code Gordon at checkout for an additional 15% off. That's neurohacker.com Gordon for an extra 15% off. Thanks to Neurohacker for sponsoring today's show. Neurohacker.com slash Gordon. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Gordon Deal with Jennifer Koshenka Coming up this half hour, camp for young content creators. Also, prepping airline food. And is flag football becoming the next pickleball? We'll have that story in about 15 minutes. Well, education programs aimed at helping children gain the skills needed to become online creators are exploding more on things like youtube camps from taylor lorenz tech columnist at the washington post taylor what's out there
6: yeah creator camp is a couple hundred dollars a week um it kind of depends you know that's a program from 8 a.m to 3 p.m um some of the other camps are a little bit more expensive um it just kind of depends on the program and if the camp is solely dedicated to this or it's just part of it
0: okay uh, so to that point they're like what art or theater camps that are maybe incorporating some of this in there.
6: Yeah, exactly. There's uh, there's camps focused on STEM skills, kind of tech camps. Um, they teach kids maybe coding, and and same with a uh, creator camp. You know, they have other tracks for like Minecraft, uh, video gaming admins, and things like that. So there's you know certain camps like that and then as you mentioned the theater camps the arts camps um, and more schools more schools are offering this uh you know courses in these types of things for undergrads and uh college kids
0: Uh, what do parents say about it for example for the young kids who were attending uh this camp in texas you looked at
6: yeah parents are really excited i mean they really just wanted um their kids to pursue their passions and i think a lot of Parents, you know, felt like, look, even if my kid doesn't make it as a YouTuber, they've learned really valuable skills like video editing and, uh, you know, script writing and copywriting and creativity. And, you know, those are all valuable whether or not you become, you know, the next superstar
0: online. Yeah. Uh, speaking of online, it can be scary at times, at least uh, as parents seeing this uh, for their children. Uh, digital safety is something addressed there.
6: Yeah, exactly. Uh, they do um, talk about creating responsible content. Um, the videos that they make at camp, you know they stress safety and fun. Um, and then uh, and then of course yeah, it's up to parents to kind of decide whether their kid has a public social media profile or not. Um, that's ultimately they leave that decision up to the parents.
0: Thanks Taylor, Taylor Lorenz tech columnist at the Washington Post. Coming up next, what goes into preparing airline food? Did you know traditional bedsheets harbor as much bacteria as a toilet seat? The germs in your sheets can cause acne, allergies, stuffy noses, and other gross ailments. Fears, though, that you can put to bed with Miracle-Made bedsheets. Miracle-Made uses silver infused fabrics inspired by NASA that are thermoregulating to keep you at a perfect temperature all night. Miracle-Made is self-cleaning, self-cooling, luxurious, eco-friendly bedding designed to protect your skin for more restorative rest. My wife and I love them. Now, my listeners can have a clean night's sleep while saving over 40% and sleep cool all summer and warm all winter. The website, TryMiracle.com slash Gordon. Claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% at checkout. Miracle-Made products are backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Again, the website, TryMiracle.com slash Gordon. TryMiracle.com slash Gordon to save big. You can sleep cool, comfy, and clean. Miracle-Made bedding, NASA-inspired for out-of-this-world comfort. Sleep clean with Miracle. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. People often say you don't want to see how the sausage is made. Well, Zach Wichter, travel writer at USA Today, is not one of them. He recently sampled a bunch of Delta Airlines' new first class food at their headquarters in Atlanta. So, did he spit it out into a napkin or ask for seconds? Zach, what happened?
2: Delta kindly let me into their domestic flight kitchen at their headquarters in Atlanta and I got to see all about how airplane meals come together. Um, And it was really crazy. I mean, the volume of meals that they produce is just tremendous. And seeing this gigantic facility really makes you appreciate how much goes on behind the scenes uh, to get that food on the little tray that (laughs) comes in front of you.
1: Right.
0: What did you try when you were there?
2: Oh my goodness! What didn't I try? i the, so they so when I was down there, they gave me a tasting of pretty much I think every item on the current domestic first class menu. It was everything from breakfast food like overnight oats uh, and uh, like a yogurt parfait to short ribs and ravioli and it was all surprisingly to me really good you know
0: wow all right so explain if you can at least a little bit what goes into i don't know the amount of meals they must have to churn out every day
2: oh yeah i mean it's like thousands of meals a day Um, And they have this big facility down in Atlanta. It's one of actually four catering facilities just in Atlanta and is almost exclusively dedicated to flights that depart from that airport. So if you think about it, that can really give you a sense of the scale of the overall catering operation because they have this replicated in many places across the country. But basically, it's all about trying to get consistently delivered food, kind of cooked and processed and plated and out to the plane as quickly as possible. And one thing that I thought was really interesting is they bring in a lot of fresh ingredients, you know, produce, that kind of thing. And they really do work to keep it fresh. If a fresh fruit or a vegetable comes into that facility, it's on the plane the same day or at most the next day. And so the volume of turnover there is really high and there are just thousands of employees working to get everything uh, together and keep it moving.
0: <laughs> We're speaking with Zach Wichter. He writes the Cruising Altitude column for USA Today about travel. This piece is called What's the Deal with Airline Food? He went to Atlanta to find out with Delta. Uh, so why does food get a bad rap then if what you say is, is true, that it's good, it's of higher quality?
2: Sure. So I think, you know, historically, um, especially, say, from like the 80s and 90s, because, you know, way long ago, airline food was known for being really good when they were carving roast in the aisle. <laughs> uh, and then there was a period where airlines were really consolidating and cost cutting. Uh, and at that time, I think they leaned in pretty heavily to the frozen, prepackaged meal kind of offerings. Um, since then, like I said, more recently, airlines have put a lot of thought and investment into creating meals that they sort of cook on the ground Freeze and reheat on board, yes, but they spend a lot more time thinking about what food uh, is going to reheat well um, and really kind of tweaking their menus to make it as tasty as they can, uh, given the limitations of, you know, serving and heating up food on airplanes.
0: I was surprised by the hygiene routine that you found for workers in that catering area.
2: Yeah, this hygiene routine that you're asking about, everyone who works in this facility who's involved in food prep has to go through this sort of air blast chamber where you walk in, you close the door, it shoots you with all of this high pressure air to blast all of the particles off of the protective clothing that you're already wearing over your regular clothes. And then you go out a door on the other side and go through a multi-step hand washing and sanitizing process. And so obviously I mean it's a it can be a big concern when you're dealing with this volume of food and the number of people that you're serving every day. You really want to make sure that everything is clean and not contaminated. You don't want to get hundreds or thousands of people sick because one person was sick on the line or hadn't washed their hands properly.
0: Thanks Zach. Zach Wichter, travel writer at USA Today. Coming up next, the soaring popularity of flag football. Dell's Black Friday event is their biggest sale of the year. Shop limited-time deals on laptops like the stylish, innovative XPS 13, engineered to do it all on the Intel Evo platform. Plus, save big on ultra-sharp monitors and top-brand accessories. Shop now at dell.com slash deals to take advantage of huge savings and free shipping. Again, that's dell.com slash deals. Hey, glad you're with us. The four major professional U.S. sports teams continue to attract fans by the millions and emerging sports like pickleball find new followers. But flag football, the tackle-free version, is quickly gaining ground among participants and could become a legitimate spectator sport in the coming years. More from Charles Passy, reporter at MarketWatch. Charles, take us through it.
7: Flag football is becoming huge on the participant level. I mean, if you have a a kid in a flag football rec league, you probably already do know this. But 7.1 million Americans played flag football last year i mean that is a legit stat from the sports and industry fitness association it's been on the upswing everybody's in the flag football game the nfl runs flag it's called nfl flag it runs flag leagues for youths and the NFL decided, you know, they do the they did the Pro Bowl every year, their version of the All-Star game. The NFL turned that into a flag event because yep. athletes don't want to get injured uh, during what's essentially an exhibition game. Um, there's a professional flag football league, uh, the American flag football league that's set to launch next year. So there really is this groundswell for the game, and, and there's a lot of reasons behind it.
0: Boy, if the NFL is behind it, that's a lot of muscle. So, right, I mean we can expect a lot to think to continue to happen for flag football.
7: Absolutely. And and look, the reason everybody's getting behind it, there's there's one really big reason here, which is that tackle football, which is essentially the brand that the NFL represents, although they're now in the flag game, uh, tackle football is dangerous. Um, And, you know, we've seen all the reports about the concussions uh, with NFL players, but, you know, we've also now know that like this is reaching into the youth level. I mean, there are, there is a serious decline in, in, in tackle football participation at the youth level. I mean, it's dropped something like 12.2% since its um, peak, which was more than a decade ago. So parents are concerned. Maybe the kids are concerned too. So flag is finding a way in there. And, you know, listen, I spoke to one sports industry analyst who said, you know, he thinks part of the flag, the reason the NFL is getting in the flag game is there's twofold. One is that if we create this groundswell for flag, it might introduce people to the broader concept of football. And maybe they'll start to watch tackle football or they'll start to play tackle football. But I spoke to one sports industry expert who said, my thinking is that the NFL also needs something in its back pocket if essentially Tackle football becomes banned or becomes really kind of like way on the decline. Like in other words, if there's a real backlash to tackle football, NFL can you know uh, just immediately say, "Okay, we're now NFL flag football. That's that's our new game." Wow. Do I really think that's going to happen? Probably not. But the mere fact we're talking about it talks about uh, the potential of flag in, in, in our in our society.
0: Thanks, Charles. Charles Passy reporter at MarketWatch. Well, we'll finish with this. Dana Rice, realtor in the Bethesda, Maryland and Washington, D.C. area, has gone viral after capturing the comical moment her husband created a Taylor Swift jar. The mom of three told Fox News that it wasn't until Taylor Swift's Eras tour launched that her fascination with the singer really took off. Her husband, Dan, has heard enough, though, of Taylor Swift talk, even though he does respect his wife's admiration of the star. The video captured Mrs. Rice's genuine reaction to seeing her very own Taylor Swift jar, which requires her to pay a quarter anytime she mentions the A-list celebrity or Taylor Swift's new beau, Travis Kelsey. The jar reads, quote, Taylor Swift jar. Any mention of T-Swift and you owe 25 cents, I can't take it anymore. Travis Kelsey included. The jar is a spin on the commonly used swear jar, which requires anyone to pay a fee to the jar after using profanity in an effort to discourage the use of foul language. Mrs. Rice says she'll be using all those quarters for Taylor Swift tickets in the future. That'll do it for this hour. For Jennifer Koshenka, I'm Gordon Deal. Thanks for listening to This Weekend.